Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 110, week 110, volume 110, number fucking 110. How you going guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Mike of the Red Cord and Wear Your Wounds, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's kick things off with single of the week. This week it comes from Make Them Suffer. They have released the first track from their upcoming album. The track is called Erase Me. The album is titled How to Survive a Funeral. It sees its release on June 5th through Grayscale Records. Great to have Make Them Suffer back. This will be their fourth album and they're definitely a champion of the Australian scene and they've returned in form. Everything we expect, strong riffs, booming soaring chorus, and this track is guaranteed to go off in a live setting. Make sure you back the guys and this song and this album. As I said, the song is a Raise Me. Album is How to Survive a Funeral. Gets released June 5th. So while you're delving into the track, make sure you also go back and listen to our chat with Sean, the vocalist that was episode 22. Album of the week comes from Heaven Shall Burn. They have released their ninth album. It's titled Of Truth and Sacrifice. It's out now on Century Media Records. This album is fucking amazing. Blistering from start to finish. Melodic death metal at its fucking finest. This band have been going for around 24, 25 years And this album is still as strong and pissed off and determined as it should be. Outstanding. Five out of five. Make sure you give it a go. The album's called Of Truth and Sacrifice. The band is Heaven Shall Burn. And it's out now. It's now time for feedback, questions, what's been going on. And understandably, it's a bit quiet at the moment, but... A lot of you guys have got in touch and told us that you're spending your time delving back and re-listening or discovering our previous content. So thank you and much love to everyone that's doing that. If you've got time this week, give us a rating and review on iTunes or our Facebook page. And also, if you enjoy this chat or any of our previous chats, help us out, share it around on your social medias and make sure you tag the Mosh Zone in it. Enough of the ramblings, enough of the jibber-jabber, let's kick into the main part of the show. This week I got to chat with Mike of the Red Cord and Wear Your Wounds, and the first thing I have to say is thank you so very, very much, Mike, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So the Red Cord, if you're unaware of who they are, while Mike was in the band or As Mike was in the band, they did four albums. They're a pivotal band within the heavy scene and they helped forge a unique sound that has been copied ever since. Mike joined Wear Your Wounds around 2016 and he's been a vital part of that band also, contributing to two albums. As a diehard Red Chord fan, getting Mike on the show was essential but also meant the world. We deep-dived into everything about Mike, the bands he's been in, and everything else in between. I'm stoked on this conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. That chat with Mike is coming up now. 
Um, all right, so I always start off with kind of the same question, which is usually, do you remember an artist or a musician, not necessarily a heavy artist or musician, but one that opened your world to music being something in existence? Um, yeah, uh, when I was, when I was a kid, um, I listened to, uh, my parents' records. I listened to, uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller a bunch and, uh, actually John Denver. Mm. That was, those are the earliest things that I heard played around the house that like, that I, that I remember listening to, um, before I got into my, you know, before I got into stuff on my own. So basically music was, was it part of the household or was it that you kind of went out of your way to play the music that your parents had? Um, music, I mean, my parents had, you know, my parents played music, but no one in my family was really a musician. Um, and I, it was later I heard, um, I listened to stuff with my neighbor. We listened to, uh, I remember, uh, a lot of Metallica, Motley Crue, Skid Row, and then later like Slayer and Testament. Um, so it was actually my neighbor down the street that got me into heavier stuff. And that's when I that's when I really started to like seek out bands and that sort of thing. I was also really into video game music as a kid, and I used to record that stuff off the TV. Um, so basically, a lot of a lot of different sonic things were kind of affecting me then. So I mean, I've heard that story about the recording video games and TV themes. What what was going on there for you? Was it literally that you just enjoyed that music so much that you wanted to be able to play it at any time? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I listen to music, um, where I would, I would play video games and, uh, you know, I always had a, like a lot of kids, there was like a limit to the amount of time I was allowed to play. So I still wanted to hear the music and I still wanted to like, feel like I was playing it. So I definitely would be listening to that stuff. Plus there was a lot of good stuff. Um, I listened to it a lot when I wasn't playing. And actually, probably listen to video game music a lot more than I actually played video games. And what video games are we talking? Are we talking NES? Or are we talking Sega? What are we talking? Or Commodore 64? What are we talking? Um, it, NES and Sega were big ones. Uh, Sega Genesis, I think it's, they call it the Mega Drive there. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, is it Mega Drive there? Yeah, it was it? the Mega Drive, yeah. But we had Mega the Drive. Genesis, I think, as well. We had two, I think we had two generations. I mean, I wasn't a Sega person, I was oh. a Nintendo person. Um, oh yeah yeah so i remember having the nes yeah yeah i was obsessed with the nes i i started playing um my my dad had an apple 2 plus uh which was like a old you know monochrome green screen uh apple that had five and a uh five and a quarter inch floppy disks (laughs) and i remember uh some friend of his lent us his game collection and it was like a leather case for his five and a quarter inch floppy disks. <laughs> and, uh, I, li- I remember th- I listened to the, I played this game microwave all the time, which had weird sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of got obsessed with that. Then I got an, uh, NES or we had an Intellivision too, but there's not a lot of music in that, but the NES had a lot of music that really, um, you know, I, I taped it in on my little boom box and, and, uh, same with Genesis. A lot of Genesis games. So clearly, from from a young age, music was just something that you couldn't get enough of. Do you can you kind of figure out why uh, when you look back, or is it just something that it just that's how it was? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what, I guess it was probably the thing that caused me to gravitate towards video games was the same reason I gravitated towards metal. Um, it was like the, you know, I, like I was with metal, I was obsessed with the, with like a high gain, um, you know, oversaturated scooped guitar tone, the, like the sound of a chugging guitar with like a, through like a Marshall sounded just per- particularly pleasing to me. So it's almost like as if the riffs didn't need to be good when I first got into it. I just wanted to hear chugging guitars. And I felt that same way about, I think about Nintendo sounds like, uh, all the, you know, square waves and all that stuff had the same, had a similar appeal just being like a pleasing sound. And then on top of that, there were a lot of cool arrangements too. Um, I don't know. Other than that, I'm not really sure why, you know, I've always been, um, throughout my life, I've always been really affected by auditory things. Uh, you know, I'm real easily distracted by sound. Um, so it makes sense, I guess, something about, I don't know, the way our brains work. Some of us gravitate towards sound. Some people don't care about music at all, which blows my mind. Yeah. Anyone that, you know, I find it strange when I meet someone and I say what kind of music you're into and they say, well, anything. And yeah. that phrase in itself I find disturbing because you can have yeah. your like and your passion in any style, but if you say anything, that means somehow you just don't like really music for me. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I just don't understand how you could, you know, be in that, just have that, just have no interest. I remember growing up it was – um kids would say uh oh i like they'd say i like everything or they'd say uh oh i just listen to the radio <laughs> and i was like just the ra- the radio not even a station not even like <laughs> one particular station just anything at all which just meant i don't care about this at all <laughs> and i just there's this one kid i went to high school with who um would say that and it the first time he said it to me it it was actually the first time i heard anyone say that phrase and i was like you're like an alien to me. You were not even the same species. I don't even understand. <laughs> what's wrong I, I with can't, you? <laughs> what's wrong with you? I, why don't you care? Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about the neighbor who kind of helped open the world to the heavier side of the genre or music in itself. So was that kind of a pivotal thing for you with Discovery? Because was it someone that was saying to you, oh, check this out? you need to listen to this or was it kind of you were hanging out with them and then the music happened to be playing and then you were like, Ooh, I really like this. Um, he actually was just really into, uh, I guess at this point it's like 30 years ago. So I'm going to say he probably, I think he, I think he brought tapes over to my house. I remember listening to, uh, one of the, like maybe Motley Cruz or something like that. I think it was Dr. Feelgood. Um, on my front steps on a boombox, and I think he was bringing tapes over to share with me, and um, and then we started like a what we called a band. We were like nine years old, so we just made noise with dumb stuff, you know. Like there was like a snare drum and a cymbal that he had, and then uh, this guitar, this Hotlicks guitar, which was like one of those toy guitars that you could also if you hit the fretboard, it would play little riffs, but then you could also use like this whammy bar and play actual notes. 
Mm-hmm. So we just make all kinds of noise. And uh, I think our band was called. Um, I don't remember, actually. I think it was just our initials at one point. <laughs> uh, it was just us, you know, two of us making noise. And th- yeah, after that, I I borrowed tapes from him, made copies of them, and then a couple other friends of mine started getting into stuff. So when when did you start, apart from, you know, mucking around with your neighbor, you know, around the age of nine, when did you start gravitating towards wanting to play an instrument um, and why, you know, why guitar? Of all instruments you had to go for at the offset, uh, why did you pick guitar? Well, I actually um, wanted to play drums when I was a kid, but my parents, I guess I didn't really have a whole, I didn't really have too much of a, I wasn't like too focused on any one instrument. I just want, I remember wanting to play drums and my parents didn't like the idea of having a drum set around the house, which is fair. Mm. And my, and my, that friend had said that something like, well, you're better at guitar and I'm better at drums. So I should be the drummer and you should be the guitar player. And I wasn't really playing guitar. I was playing with the hot Lex guitar. So mm. I, uh, which was basically like a little synth. So I borrowed my uncle's guitar, which was a lefty. Um, and I'd been hold. I was playing this acoustic guitar in the basement that had been my great aunt's, and it was like laying around the house. And I played it lefty, so I felt so. At some point, we determined that I was a lefty, and I borrowed my uncle's lefty, um, and then just started to learn that way. So I think I was like eleven, are ten, you or eleven. Naturally, are you right-handed in everything else? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I I write with my right hand. I um I throw with my right hand. I do most things right hand. I I got a little bit more dexterity out of my left hand. I think because I'm a guitar player, a lefty guitar player. Jeez, well that's quite that's quite unique unto itself. Um, yeah. So basically, just by chance, you created the ability to be a lefty. I guess I always thought it made sense to. I always thought it made sense to fret with my right hand since I was doing everything with my right hand because I thought that was the more articulate part of playing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it never really felt weird to me. It felt kind of natural. Um, it was years later when I realized that everybody was playing the other way and I couldn't play people's guitars when they got new guitars and <laughs> and I was mad at myself. I was like, why didn't I learn righty? But I think playing lefty probably made me unique in some way that I wouldn't have been if I'd been a righty. And you mentioned there about learning. So uh, was a lot of your learning uh, progression self-learn? Like, did you self-teach? Yeah. Yeah, I, I took lessons, but my I took lessons from this guy at this, um, like, this program in town um, that my mom signed me up for. And she had no idea that this guy was like not teaching me anything. He, I would literally show up and just show him riffs that I'd, that I'd written while he did some paperwork or something. <laughs> and it would be like a half hour, hour lesson. I can't remember. He wouldn't, he barely paid attention to what I was doing. I would just be like, listen to this riff. <laughs> and, uh, he taught me two things that I were not really very useful. He taught me this one blues chord progression and he taught me um, the bass line to low rider, even though I was a guitar player. He taught me the bass line, 
because he was a bass player who played a six string. And for some reason he convinced the organization that because he played a six string, it was obviously run by non-musicians. He, I was like, Oh yeah, my guitar has six strings. I can teach guitar and he would teach. And so he taught me a bass line. I think I took guitar lessons for like a couple years there, but it was like, you know, it was like summertime or like a semester or something like that. Um, and my mom used to lug this big, heavy amp up and down the stairs for me because I was a tiny kid. And, um, it was this amp that she, uh, she brought communion to prisoners, uh, and uh, and this guy was like, I have an amp and I can't use it because I'm in prison. If your son, your son wants to learn guitar, he can borrow my amp. Wow. So I, it was this amp from some guy in prison who was nice enough to let me borrow it. But it was heavy as hell, old thing with you know one clean channel, and I wanted it to be noisy, and my mom carried it around. <laughs> <laughs> so you spend so you spend some time with you know clearly a teacher that really just didn't give a fuck. Um, he was just no. there to get paid. Um, and then you obviously start honing your skills on your own. Where where were you going? Because at that stage, because we're, we're the same age, so around that time, where are you drawing um, your inspiration and influence from? Like, who are you looking at and saying, right, I'm going to learn that song or I'm going to watch how they play? Like, what were you at with your self-teaching and inspiration? So at that point, probably when I was like 11 or 12, when I was taking lessons, I was like discovering heavier forms of metal. I was like, I think when I was 12 is when I found out about, um, I was like 12 or 13 when I found out about cannibal corpse and death. Mm. I was listening to a lot of thrash. I loved, uh, Testament's the legacy. I listened to, uh, obsessively. And I, um, I was really into Testament and Metallica and, um, Oh yeah, so I listened to a lot of Christian metal because mm-hmm. my family was not into my parents were not into the idea of me uh you know listening to all this e- evil shit that I was into <laughs> uh like Slayer and all that. So one day I was at this Christian bookstore called Christian Book and Supply with my mom and I saw tapes in there. Actually one of the bands uh was the band Mortification from Australia. Mhm. And they, I remember seeing their tape and being like, holy shit, these guys look scary. They're around candles. The, the song titles sound evil. There was a song called Brutal Warfare. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was another tape, Scrolls of the Megaloth, that had like skulls all over it. I didn't care that it was about the Bible. I just wanted it to be heavy and be, you know, they're singing about cool shit and it was and i remember hearing it was i think that mortification might have been the first band that i heard that had death growls and i was like wow i i actually didn't like them at first as i think a lot of people it's you know it's a it's a um you know an acquired taste Hmm. but i got really into those tapes and i also discovered the band tourniquet um and a bunch of other christian bands and I felt like I was like cheating somehow, I'd, like pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. I'm like, I still get to listen to heavy shit and they're still singing about Satan, but it's okay with my parents for some reason. As far as I was concerned, it didn't matter if they liked Satan or they didn't like Satan. They were still yelling Satan. That's all I wanted to hear, you know? <laughs> so I was getting what I wanted. And, uh, 
and I remember even talking over some of the part, some of the parts that sounded particularly Christian when I played it for my neighbor. Um, I was like, listen, how heavy this is. And I remember him saying, did he just say Isaiah 53? And I was like, no, I don't know what he was saying. It was (laughs) probably something evil. Uh, but those bands are, I still listen to those bands to this day. They're awesome. And, um, I think they're both still around. I know Tourniquet's still around. Yeah, Tourniquet's um, still around, yeah. Yeah, and they, they've been putting out great stuff. Um, but, yeah, so I heard those tapes, and then then I was able to get my hands on uh, Eaten Back to Life, the first Cannibal Corpse record, and that. Um, I found it at a comic book store, used, and I remember reading the lyrics and being so excited that the lyrics were about gore. I was like, it's about killing people and it's metal. <laughs> it was like, you know, when I was like 13 years old, I was, it was like everything I wanted. So yeah. Then I started down that path, listening to all that stuff. And all of the, that whole time I was basically trying to write stuff like those band songs, but I never, I didn't really, I learned riffs here and there playing, but most of the time I was trying to write my own stuff. I was trying to make my version of all of that. And I would make tapes um and draw the cover art and like title a bunch of songs and they were all just kind of like jams in my like sort of like improv jams in my room on a boombox but i would i would make the whole cassette as if it was like a proper release um because <laughs> the fantasy was just you know that i wanted to be in a band with guys. i didn't really know anybody who wanted to play that stuff as i got older um so i always just kind of all throughout high school i you know i played music with people but none of them wanted to be in a death metal band so what kind of what was high school like for you? I mean, was was music your only um, kind of goal in mind, or you know, were there people at school that were telling you, you know, Mike, you need a career, you need to be focused on what you want to do, uh, you need to pick your path. Like, where were you going with your schooling? Were you just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do what I do, and music's my thing? Oh yeah, I didn't care at all about. I was not at all motivated to be involved with anything at school. Um, I basically, you know, I, I did really well in school up until a point when I was, I was probably like fourth or fifth grade. They started to say, he's not paying attention. He needs to pay attention. I only discovered the last few years after I got diagnosed with ADHD, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. That was what was going on when I was a kid. (laughs) But you know, they weren't, talking about that in the eighties. So, or not, or early nineties. So they were just telling me I didn't, you know, I didn't apply myself or I didn't care enough. So I basically sort of shrugged that off early on. I was, as soon as I discovered music and playing my own music, I was like, why do I need, I'm not interested or invested in any of this and I can go home and play my guitar in my room. And then I, uh, started playing with friends and we all had different ideas. We, we I played in this band in high school called Alewife, and we all had different ideas of what the band should be. Like I wanted it to be a death metal band. Another guy wanted it to be like Leonard Cohen, Nirvana type mix. And uh, another guy was like full on into like Richard Marx and Yanni. Uh, it was a really weird mix. We wrote some weird music, uh, but we wrote a ton of songs. We spent, we would like, we would have sleepovers every Friday night where we watched the X-Files and then woke up in the morning and just wrote music all Saturday. And, uh, so we wrote hundreds of songs, like all bad. You know, there were, <laughs> some of them were, some of them were probably interesting, but you know, we were figuring our stuff out and, um, 
Yeah, I was just so obsessed with that. Uh, everything else just went out. The, I didn't care about anything else. Even like video games, I still played them, but they sort of fell by the wayside. They only I related to them more. You know, I, I still became I was still obsessed with the music and all that. But yeah, once I started playing music, you know, it's like the rest of the world just went out of focus. So I didn't. I barely graduated high school. I um, yeah, I was like two fifty two out of two fifty five in my class. And, uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't care about any of that. I, I got a job at a computer store and, um, and then that's when I met the red cord guys. Yeah. So you, you kind of bounce out of school and bounce into the band. And, um, from everything I know, you, you met Guy, I believe was kind of who your first initial contact with was. So, you know, going from being a kid at school who, didn't really have anyone that liked the same music um, and you were kind of meshing styles together, obviously, with that high school band. How did you and Guy touch in? And then how how did you realise you liked the same music? Was it kind of a conversation or was it just by chance that you guys realised that, all right, maybe we can do something? <coughs> well, and I, actually, I was um, we played a show together. Um, the pre-Red Chord band, Ictus, uh, played this battle of the bands in Winchester, Mass. I think it was Winchester, where uh, uh, my the band I was playing for at the time, I was just singing for them. Um, also played that show at the time. We changed our name. We were called Sheol at one point, and then we changed our name to the Flux Capacitor. I'm not sure what we were called at the time, but we played this show together. And I remember seeing Ictus play and. And being impressed and and being excited that there was another band playing that was like a metal band, and at the time I, I think I was nineteen and I still hadn't like I was playing death metal ish stuff with these guys who I went to high school with, um, and I was still really excited at the prospect of playing guitar in a death metal band, and I didn't you know I just sang in this band because they had two guitar players when I joined. Um, and I talked to a guy at the show briefly and we exchanged information and then he called me at work. Actually, I, th- I remember talking to him when I worked at CompUSA, uh, the computer store I worked at. Um, I talked to him on the phone a little bit about, he said they were looking for a guitar player. Their guitar player was leaving and I, he had, and I had mentioned to him that I play guitar. So I went down to try out, um, and I, uh, you know, I had only met Guy, so I, I think I, I think I got picked up for some reason. I met, I met our old bass player Rob at the mall, and he picked me up. I don't know why I drove my car to the mall parking lot, parked there, then he picked me up and drove me to uh, our drummer's house. I don't know why we did it that way. <laughs> uh, maybe because you know it was pre MapQuest directions and all that. I think I was just like, I don't know where that is in Lynn. I'll just drive to the mall and meet you there. Um, so, and driving around Boston is, you know, I mean, this is north of Boston, but driving around this area has always been a, a nightmare. Um, so I met him there and then we went to Mike's house and, uh, and I remember being real excited because they had like a basement practice space, you know, and, uh, and I plugged into somebody's gear. I didn't have any like real gear at the time. I think I had like a combo amp. I plugged into somebody's gear 
and I started showing them riffs that I'd been writing because I'd been writing stuff with a drum machine and just like making death metal stuff on my own. Um, and they started laughing and I remember being like, Oh no, they're laughing. This is bad. And then they were like, we love this. They were laughing because they liked it so much. <laughs> they were like, Oh my God, I love that. But I was like, Oh shit. That's not what you want to happen in a tryout them to start laughing. <laughs> Where were you going with what you were writing? Because, you know, you're during the record and during what a lot of what you do throughout your career, you're one of the main writers. You're not the only writer, but one of the main writers. And with what you did, especially in the red record, um, I think one of the bands or one of the easy ways of saying with the band was it was, um, and I don't mean it in a negative way, it was eccentric. And it was experimental at times. Um, mm -hmm. You couldn't say, if someone said, oh, this is death metal, well, then two seconds later you'd go, well, that ain't death metal. Um, and then yeah. if you said, well, this is kind of, it's got a core element to it, then it doesn't have a core element to it. It was very all over the shop. So was that how you were writing? You just didn't have any limitations and it was just like, whatever I do, I do? Yeah, pretty much. Um Definitely with the red cord, we were trying to, I don't know that we all had the exact same goal at the time, but when I joined up, cause I wasn't really examining things this clearly or too clearly when I, at this point, mm. you know, I was, I was like, my perspective was, I just want to write the most brutal stuff I can come up with. I want to write the fastest. I was obsessed with like, you know, death metal. I was writing the fastest, most insane stuff possible. Um, and then when I met those guys, I was like, wow, these guys can play that stuff. If I write something super crazy, they can do it. Um, which I wasn't used to being able to do that. Cause no one really was that no one I'd played with before really cared about being fast or playing death metal. So I was like, wow, like this drummer, our old drummer, Mike, I was like, I was like, this drummer can do all this crazy shit. If like, I can't believe this. So I was, I felt kind of like, you know, kid in a candy store a little bit excited that we could play really crazy stuff and everybody would be able to pull it off. Um, those guys, you know, they had their own ideas about, about, um, about music and they were not necessarily trying to do that same thing, but we definitely all kind of just wanted to write crazy music. Um, and we, de and we definitely tried to, you know, push things as far as we could or as far as we were capable of, um, when we wrote the first record, it was a lot of like, let's cram more riffs into this, you know, <laughs> and we need another everybody. <laughs> yeah. And everybody had, there was a point when we wrote, uh, the song dreaming in dog ears where, where we didn't know what to do with the, we stayed up real late. We were like at Mike's house till the middle of the night working on that song, which for some reason we were able to be loud in the basement at like 2am. But, um, we were working on that song late and we were, um, and we were, uh, we were like, Oh, what do we do with this part? Where, how do we turn it all around and bring it to this next riff? And we were like, well, why don't we just play every song, every riff in the song once? And then we, so we basically <laughs> do that in the song, uh, or something like that. Um, you, you also, you know, you didn't mind a tempo change which is part of that riffing going on, and you didn't mind remembering a groove, um, which is something you did. But the real question I have is, 
you're a band nowadays that is considered by a lot of current bands um, still an influence for them. Um, so kind of like, how's that feel that even when you were just kind of meshing a bunch of shit together and just saying, let's be as quick and as heavy as possible, that people now come to you and say, if it wasn't for your band, I probably wouldn't be doing what I were doing. And if it wasn't for your band, maybe a certain style wouldn't have gotten as big as it is. I mean, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's a really, um, amazing thing. When people say that kind of thing, I, uh, you know, I feel that way about, you know, bands that had that effect on me. Um, so it's cool. It's very flattering that, uh, somebody would consider us an influence or, or anything like that. Um, you know, we were just trying to, make the music that we wanted to make. I think like, uh, you know, we were just trying to make music that we wanted to listen to. So it's definitely, um, it feels real good that, that people think that about the band. It's got to feel crazy though, that, you know, you were just doing whatever and you're having fun while doing it. And now people go back and say, fuck man, like red cord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is crazy. It's, it's a little bit hard to, um, it's hard to even really sort of process. I guess I probably don't, I don't know. I guess I think there's a lot of bands that have, I think, you know, it's rare that you can point to a single band that develops some sound. I know that obviously some bands might have a little more influence than others, but you know, it's sort of a collective thing, everybody doing it together, creating a sound and sort of being influenced from each other. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's real crazy to think that there are bands that, you know, that are, uh, that are inspired by that or, or that people will give us that kind of credit. So, you know, the, the first release fused together in revolving doors, um, which, you know, the title, if anyone's unsure about go and have a look why that album's titled what it is. Um, where was the local scene at the time for you guys? Were you, jobbing around playing a couple of shows here and there like what was it like for the band in the early days going into that album um well we were just playing we were basically playing every show we could um we just wanted to play and the actually at that point um the band was very much a live band before anything else we were all about writing songs and playing shows um my perspective of music has always been that it's writing that I care about. Um, I care about making records. That's, that's always been my, like the reason I do it, I want to create more things. Um, and I love playing shows too, but it's almost secondary to, um, to making a record. So the red cord kind of had a different approach to things that I probably, I mean, I'm sure it had a, big influence it definitely had a big influence on my playing i wasn't a super tight i wasn't super tight playing wise until i joined that band i remember they were like you gotta get these stops tighter in the beginning um so i started thinking about things i had never thought about before but we were all about having a great live show so we played everywhere we could we did a little tour down the east coast um 2001 i think uh with a demo with three songs that we'd recorded in our drummer's basement. And, uh, and we just like 
got in, we got in front of anybody we could. Um, and by the time we were making a record, you know, that was the first record that I ever made. And, and for most of the guys, it was their first record. So it was like, uh, all kind of new experience. We made it in, I think we recorded it in three days at, um, a new Alliance in, uh, Boston. And it was just kind of like, it was, yeah, we didn't even know where I didn't even, I didn't, I'd never been in a real studio before. So, um, it was all just kind of like a lot of it, you know, I know it's cliche to say people say this, but it was kind of, a lot of it was kind of a blur to me back then because I was just doing a lot of new things I'd never done before. Well, I mean, it is, it's, it's a lot of it is learning as you go and you know, it's, being in a band in your early years, as you said, also a lot of it is learning as you go, you know, becoming a tired yeah. live performer, becoming over time better in the studio, your writing improves. Um, what what was the expectation with that album? Um, was it just, we've got some songs written and we need to get some music out? Or was it, did you guys, which is natural, did you 100% think, this is just going to fucking blow up, we're going to be fucking huge? Uh, we definitely didn't think that we, um, we, we actually thought we didn't really think, um, anyone would care. We just wanted to make a record. I forget exactly how that transpired. I think, um, I remember, I remember that Mike and Guy were at a party somewhere with that, uh, Andy Lowe was at, um, who put out the record. Um, at the time the label was called Robo Dog, Robo Dog Records. And there was, I think they all got, I think it was like the point, the same night they were at this party and there was this fight and they got into a fight with some random asshole. I think Mike poured a beer on the guy's head and the dude bit his thumb or something. It was like this absurd situation. I think guy, like guy smashed his elbow and it was all swollen. And then, uh, in that same, like Andy was involved somehow. And I think they gave Andy the demo. They're like, Oh yeah, but here's our demo. Um, and then Andy was like, I want to put out your record. And he had like, you know, he had a little bit of money to do it. And our agreement was like, he was like, I'll give you 300 copies of the record to release it. And we were like, that sounds great. 300 copies. What a steal. Cause we were like, <laughs> you know, we didn't, and we never thought anybody would give a shit. We were just like, wow, we'll have 300 copies that we can sell ourselves. Um, and then we started getting more serious. We, you know, we'd done one tour and then things just started to kind of snowball a little bit. We started playing more. And, uh, I think the next tour we did was, would have been that year. I actually don't remember much that we did in 2002, but I do remember in 2003 we did, um, our first, I think it was 2003, it was our first uh, full U.S. tour with Bleeding Through and Himsa, And that was like, that was like, wow, wow, we're doing this. We're like, we're doing a full tour. Like, we bought a trailer and, um, yeah, it was just kind of happening. We were like, you know, putting our money from our jobs into buying stuff and going to the space. And, you know, one day we came home with a little bit of money and it was like, wow, we got paid for this. What, what happened? <laughs> you know, it was all kind of, for me, it was all kind of an accident. It was, it, you know, like a fun thing we were doing sort of turned into a business all of a sudden, like became a thing. And then we, you know, 2000, 
five, we quit, you know, we were like quitting our jobs and stuff, you know, and just being like, I'm do this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put all my effort into this. Well, it did. It, it seemed like a, a natural, the momentum seemed natural from fuse towards clients, you know, like you mentioned in there, you know, you're getting bigger tours and or doing tours and it seemed like the name started to just slowly build going into clients um mm-hmm. was the signing to metal blade um a pivotal moment for the band and also how did how did that link up come about did you approach them or did they approach you because you know even now and especially back then when the industry was at a different level and and labels were a big bigger thing than they are now that mm-hmm. that name you mentioned to anyone who's into heavy music you go metal blade they go oh yeah fuck yeah metal blade yeah yeah um i don't remember who reached out to who first because guy was doing a lot of the um talk with them i remember we were talking to a bunch of labels at the time um and i think the so fuse came out in 2002 we didn't sign a metal blade till 2004 late 2004 maybe um something like that and then we we're in the studio. I think we were in the studio in January for clients of 2005. We basically, or it was, I know it was a winter time. Um, we basically, yeah, we were kind of like just playing shows on fused for a while. And, and, uh, and we didn't really have any concrete plan. We were just, we, we didn't really know what we were doing. We we're just like, we're playing shows. We have a record. We're selling t-shirts. We're going on tour. Um, you know, we'd written new songs that we were playing. I think we were playing Fixation on Plastics and uh, Upper Decker for a long time before um, before we recorded Clients. And uh, and then we signed to Metal Blade. It was like, yeah, it was a really different time for labels, definitely, because, uh, you know, they, like, flew out to um, the recording and, and we were going to they were like taking us out to eat and stuff. And we were like blown away by that idea, you know, like uh robotic empire, you know, was an indie label that at the, when we were working with them, they were like, they were tiny, you know, and they, um, he's grown, you, you know, he grew over the years, but at the time he, you know, was just putting out like, like a bunch of stuff that he wanted to do. And it was like laid back. And I don't remember if we even had a contract with him. I think we ended up having one eventually, but, you know, it was like it was friends at a party getting into a fight with people and then we're putting out a record. And then Metal Blade is like, you know, industry guys, like, you know, they're like the real deal. You know, they're like pros and they uh they have a whole office and they're they put out legendary bands and you know, so it was like a big jump for us to be like, Holy shit, this is serious shit. And uh you know, and Metal Blade wasn't doing a lot of like they were doing a lot of like a lot of metal scene stuff at the time, like met like real he- classic heavy metal and like death metal. And they didn't really have much footing in the hardcore scene, which is where we were floating around. We were, you know, we were always a weird band that was kind of like, you know, a little of this, little of that, but we definitely played more hardcore and punk shows than metal shows at the time. And, um, when we did play with metal, when we did play with metal bands back then, you know, it was uh, definitely not like it is today. People look at us and they were like, "Who are these? Who are these short-haired guys?" I, although I didn't have short hair, but but people would say like, "I remember someone said, wow, those jocks play some good metal.'" 
<laughs> and I was like, jocks? Like, I'm the least athletic person I know. Like, I'm wearing <laughs> sandals on stage with long hair, like, and like a big homeless guy beard. I don't look like a jock. But it was, a, you know, the scenes were kind of divided back then. So signing to Metal Blade, I think some people that we played with, or some people that we that would come out to see us back then, were kind of like, ugh, Metal Blade, that's like, that's like cheesy heavy metal, heavy metal stuff, you know? And like these days it's everybody embraces everything, but, but at the time it was a weird thing. And I noticed the shift, uh, you know, kids on forums talking shit and all that. And I cared about that stuff back then. So I was like, Oh, these guys, people don't care about us anymore. What the hell? Um, and then, you know, and then it didn't matter. But, uh, at the time I thought those types of things mattered more like, you know, what you, what, you know, like what your, uh, label is versus, I mean, Metal Blade did a lot of great work for clients and really, really that they did a lot of work that really propelled us, um, and helped us do the things that we did. Like, um, you know, we got played on Headbangers Ball a whole bunch of times. I think Ant-Man was one of the top videos they played on that, that show when it was on, which, was really helpful, you know, like people found out about us that way. And, you know, we got to tour with, um, other, you know, other bands we would have never really, you know, it, it kind of moved in a different direction. I think, uh, you know, obviously it was like a little bit of metal blade and, um, and a little bit of our booking agent at the time, uh, we'd been with for, or with for a long, long time, uh, Matt Pike, who, you know, was like, had his hands everywhere, was helping us get on all kinds of different shows. And then we were, and then we were like branching out. And at that point it was like, wow, this is like a business now. This is like a full, full scale thing. It was, uh, it was weird. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, I, I remember that time also, um, for you guys, cause you know, always been music obsessed and, you know, seeing, the music videos, I remember seeing that, and then the Ozfest, um, and then suddenly the name, whether people were into it or not, all you had to do was say the red chord and they'd, they'd know who you were talking about. And if you'd said it around 2002, 2003, you know, it was kind of a, a roll of the dice, if anyone would know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed like at the time, also with the industry kind of booming it was it was booming, but it was about to end soon. And then you go into pray for for eyes, um, and it really just seemed like another step in the great in a in a right direction. Um, you guys seem to somehow, despite being kind of niche in some ways, you guys were getting mass appeal. Like anyone that was into really heavy shit, like death metal style, would get into it. Anyone that was into real you know hardcore kind of punk stuff would get into it. Um, do you feel like it was just by chance that everyone was kind of getting into it? Or do you think it was just maybe at the time there was a lot of bands doing a lot of different things, so people were more open to trying to get into that kind of stuff? Um, I don't know. Uh, I definitely think that at the, like that point, um, at that point there were just a million bands going on the road, and there was a lot – it was like – the like the market was getting very saturated with bands and tours and lots of people were getting into heavy stuff and you know tours like Ozfest were doing 
you know, we're like bringing on like more brutal bands. And um, then the next year, or actually Mayhem started, I think we did the first Mayhem. Next year, the Mayhem, you know, like another big like arena tour type thing with like bigger bands. I think heavy music was just, at least in the States, um, heavy music was just kind of blowing up a little bit. And I think it was exciting. People wanted to make, you know, probably more kids are starting bands because they heard more heavy bands out there and they're going to see Ozfest. They're going to Ozfest to see, you know, like System of a Down, who was headlining the year we did it. And then they end up seeing Between the Barrier to Me, you know, and they're like, wow, there's even crazier shit out there. And then, you know, and then pretty soon they're like down that wormhole. And I think, um, I think, yeah, there was definitely a lot of, um, there were a lot of spazzier, weirder bands doing weirder stuff. And, you know, bands like Psyopus and Dillinger Escape Plan obviously had a huge influence on people trying experimental things. I feel like, you know, when Dillinger put out, uh, you know, that EP and Calculating Infinity, I think people were like, I want to do this. This is crazy. I want to make wild, out of control music. And um, I feel like it just had this permeating effect across, you know, genres. At the time we were... Um, at the time we were doing, we were we were touring a little bit in Europe as well, and uh, Europe was tougher for us. Um, people definitely, it took a while for people to start to care about us there. We were really, interestingly, uh, in the UK, people cared, but mainland Europe was like kind of disinterested for a little while. Um, but yeah, here in the States, everybody was getting fired up about heavy stuff. I felt like you know, we got to do a lot of big tours and it definitely, it was very surreal. Uh, there were definitely times when, you know, when I would say to somebody in the band, like, you know, I can't believe we're doing this, you know, like we get to tour with, you know, we're touring with Slipknot, you know, like, and we're playing to like thousands of people and, and, uh, I had, when I, like, when I met up with Rob in the parking lot of the mall of the North shore mall, I really never expected uh, <laughs> it to lead to like playing these like giant venues and, you know, getting to do all this great stuff. Um, Ma'am particularly was, was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that, that tour was like blew my mind because for lots of reasons, but um, I remember, I think it was on mayhem. Yeah. It was on mayhem that, Microsoft, I guess, Xbox 360 was like, was like surging. It was like when they were pushing the Xbox 360, they gave 360s to all the bands on the tour. Wow. I remember thinking, I can't believe that I, you know, at the time I had endorsement endorsements from, you know, musical gear companies, but this is a business that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. They're giving me an Xbox as if I'm some person that anyone should give an Xbox to, you know? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they only gave one Xbox to each band. They didn't give us all Xbox, but I was still just like, holy shit, they're giving us an Xbox. Just like I bought my Xbox and it was a big deal to buy it. It was a couple hundred bucks, you know, like coming back to video games. I'm like, someone's giving me their video game. That, that was just one of those moments where I was like, I can't believe that this is like, we've gotten to this point, you know, this is just such a blessing to got to have gotten here you know like i don't i didn't i'm like i don't deserve to be here i'm just fucking around on my guitar <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just i'm just messing around and somehow someone gives a shit 
Yeah, people give a shit. And, you know, I was watching this, um, I was watching this interview with Kurt Ballou recently where he was just talking about, um, uh, what did he say? He said some really, really good thing that I thought about. I think about a lot, um, anyway, but I was, he put it better than I have. I'm going to, but it was just like, I think someone was asking about how to get involved in stuff, how to do your own thing. And he was like, just keep doing your thing. And even when you get bored of it, just keep doing it and be consistent. And I think at that point we, you know, 2007, 2008, we were probably, I was definitely like, ah, oh, I'm, I've been doing this a while, but we were just continuing to do it and we were always on the road and it was actually working for us. You so, know, I think it's harder now for bands to do that, to like repeat relentlessly tour, you know? So, I mean, are you saying that in a way going into feed through the machine that you guys maybe were going through the motions? Cause it didn't sound like you were going through the motions. That fucking album, man, like to say it sounds heavier is a weird thing to say when it comes to the red cord, but it sounds mature, mm. sounds heavier. Um, you know, what was it like going into that album? Because it wasn't long after that album that, you know, things started really changing in everyone's lives. So where were you at going into what currently we can say is the last album? Um. Well, so we weren't going through the motions as far as writing. For uh, I was, I personally felt like I was going through the motions a lot when we would go on tour, just because. Uh, I guess I've always been kind of a homebody, and um, I definitely um, sometimes I would get a little whiny about leaving for tour. I'd always have a good time, and it was always worth it, and I felt great once I was on the road. But I definitely had a hard time getting out of my comfort zone sometimes. Um, and then Guy and I would argue a lot about. Um, playing what songs i always wanted to be i always was like let's just play the new record only and who cares about the old stuff and he was always like well people want to hear some of these old songs and we got to play them and now i agree with him but at the time i was very stubborn and i was just like i don't care about the about anything we did in the past i only want to do what's new which is obviously just you know it's not a very mature approach to things but because of course you're most excited about your new stuff because mm -hmm. you're it's new and you've you know we played dreaming in dog ears thousands of times of course i want to play the new stuff but you got to play the old stuff and you know you can change it up but going into the writing of that record um i think we yeah so we toured for like a year and a half on you know um pray for eyes and uh and we were ready you know i think we started writing i think we started writing for Teeth Machine probably early 2008. I think that my demos date back to early 2008. Um, and it it's always taken us a good long while to write a Red Chord record. Uh, we really... It's funny, like if I wrote one now, I, who knows how long it would take because I, I kind of have a different approach to writing now. But at the time, I really overanalyzed everything and I really thought through things so much and like really like just did it to death. Uh, you know, and Greg too, Greg and I both do that similar thing where we like, we just like, I don't know, we play these demos for, we write over and over again. We work on the same thing. We send demos to each other and we're like, I don't know about this thing. I think it sucks. I don't know what I'm doing. And then the, the other guy's like, oh, this is really cool. And you know, okay, well maybe I'll go back and work on it. So teeth machine was not any different. It was like a lot of that same overthinking 
and then jamming in the practice space and um and yeah it was like the same process was basically like here here you know one of us would bring a song to the guys and then we'd kind of work on it together or maybe there'd be pieces that we'd sort of put together some of the songs were kind of jams like um i was about to call it by its uh working title but uh floating through the vein the working title was uh was Suffo Rawson <laughs> because uh because our friend Chris Rawson um he plays in um uh Stick to Your Guns at the time he played in Walls of Jericho we used to, we called the song Suffo Rawson because he didn't like when we would refer to suffoc- the suffocation blast as the Suffo blast he thought he would make fun of us for saying that <laughs> um you know the blast beat where the the snare and the kick hit at the same time. We mm-hmm. we've always called that the suffo blast because you know suffocation was the first place we heard it. So I'm pretty sure Mike Smith created that blast. But so we would call it that, and then we were at practice. We were like, "This this song sounds like suffocation. Let's call it suffo suffo Rawson." Uh, just busting Chris's balls. Um, <laughs> so we. Uh, Anyway, floating through the vein, that song was a lot of like Brad and I jamming on riffs together and kind of like piecing it together. And um, and Brad and I always had a really good, um, a, a good like musical synergy where I would play him a riff and he just kind of knew what I was thinking. So I'd be like, "Oh yeah, no, do it like this." We didn't have to communicate a lot. We would just kind of jam and it would come out natural. Um, and then some of those songs. You know, I wrote in front of my computer as well. Or Greg, I Greg, some of Greg's stuff for that record was jamming. Some of it was computer sitting alone with the drum machine. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think everybody says this about their last record, their most recent record, but that's my favorite Red Chord record. Well, it's pretty crazy to look back and, yeah, that was, well, that's 11 years ago now. Yeah, 11 years ago. That's a long time. Um, it is, and that was also that release was around ten years um, of the band being together. Um, yeah, around ten years. Yeah. So, I mean, the for anyone who's unaware, things started to just change. You know, there was a few member changes, which is something that you guys were never not used to. Um, you guys always seem to mm-hmm. kind of roll through that, which some bands do, some bands don't, but you guys always did. And then it seemed like um, kind of out of nowhere when Guy got his police officer stuff going that it just stopped. Um, was was it kind of like internally like we'll just put the pause button on for a bit or was it just, you know, momentum slowed down and then nothing's been said and now suddenly we're 11 years later and nobody's really said anything still? It's more that second one. Honestly, uh, I think a lot of people think that we stopped doing stuff because Guy became a police officer, but that's actually, it's it's more that Guy became a police officer because we stopped doing stuff. Um, we got home from tour uh, in 2011. We did this run with Gaza and trapped them. And we came home and we were like, I think we were just like, I, I know me personally, I was just really burnt out um, from a lot of touring and that being our lives for such a long time. Uh, we didn't always have the he- most healthy practices on the road. And I don't mean like partying. I mean, like we didn't 
sleep well. We didn't really take good care of ourselves. We were kind of always pushing ourselves a little too hard. And, you know, we were the same way about writing and recording. We always just worked a little, maybe worked a little bit too hard without giving ourselves enough time. And I think that it stressed us all out a lot. You know, we were we were young when we started doing it and we just sort of fell into it. We didn't really ever learn how to talk to each other when we were mad. You know, we just kind of like, you know, kids stumbling through it. And then one day we were all 30 and I remember, I, I remember thinking like, wow, I'm 30 years old. I've been doing this since I was 19. I don't like, I'm burnt out. Um, I know guy was a little bit, a little bit burnt out himself. Um, I think I liked I like I often take the the blame for being the the most burnt out person at the time, but I think we all were a little tired. I know Greg was not. Greg was always like ready to go. He was like, "When's the next tour? I'm ready to go." He always had the energy. Um, at the time, we had uh, let's see that last tour. Our friend John Rice was playing for us. Um, he's played the last few things we've done together. Um, and he, he was bummed out. He, he was uh, real excited to do the tour. And then we were like, I was like whining the whole time. And he was like, Oh, you guys are getting me down. And, uh, and basically we got home, we kind of went home and didn't really say much to each other. And it's sort of, it's almost like without saying anything, we sort of just stopped. We didn't, we just sort of stopped. we never had a conversation about what we were going to do. We just went home after the end of that tour and like kind of let things cool down and then cool down a lot. And then it was a cut like a year. And during this time, Greg was working and saying like, they're going to give me another promotion. Uh, should I take it? Are we going to go on the road or, and guy and I were both like, yeah, take the promotion. Don't, don't not work, you know, get more money. And we were, I think guy was like me was also kind of enjoying the downtime he had bought a house and was working on his house and, um, you know, I was kind of like, I got, I was doing some various audio work, uh, and I was sort of like enjoying being home and, um, then like years passed and, and, and we, we realized we hadn't done anything and a friend reached out, um, and we ended up playing that fest in Japan that kind of like got us thinking again. We were like, Oh, we could can we get the band like functional so we can go to Japan? And then we did. And that kind of a uh, little by little things have been sort of happening like that, that are making us think about it more. But again, time is pa- a lot of time has passed and we're a bunch of us are playing in different things now. Well, I mean, could you, I mean, saying you want it to put the band back where it was would mean, you know, a lot of difficulty because that means a lot of touring. But could the possibility ever be that, you know, it becomes a studio band? Like you still release um, an album or an EP here and there and then occasionally when the right thing pops up, play a show. Um, Is there any of that possibility? And then another question is, are you getting a lot of offers? I mean, surely, you know not blowing smoke up your ass, but surely you're a band that a lot of people say, hey, you know, would the Red Chord be up for doing this special show at this big event? You know, here's X amount of money. Yeah, I mean, we've done a couple things like that. Um, the last thing we did was the Metal, uh, metal Fest here. 
Um, and we did a couple fly-in dates here and there, and we are definitely, um, you know, we're definitely keeping that idea, you know, sort of floating around. We've gotten some offers for things, but we don't want to do things that aren't, you know, that just don't, that don't, we don't want to, we don't want to just play sh- a show for the hell of it or, mm. or play a show, you know, it has to be something that really, uh, you know, that really, uh, has, there's a, really has to be a reason for us to play at this point. We haven't put out a record. We last record is 11 years ago. So it's like to play a show now, it's literally just to come play a show. And I understand that some people do that. I know emperor is playing shows and he has no plans to make another record. Um, and that's cool. It's just sort of like not what we're what we would do um, for us to, you know, for us to start up again and like write a record is a lot of um, it's like a big undertaking. Um, and we have all this other stuff lined up. So with other bands, uh, so it's really uncertain to exactly what we'll do. Um, you know, I don't I know that people will say like, oh, they're on hiatus or they're broken up or, you know, but it really nothing happened. We stayed the same. We just stopped. We just played way less shows. I think it's kind of funny because, you know, you'll, you could call the Red Court a band that's on hiatus because we haven't played a show in a while. But some bands play one show their whole 10-year career and those bands aren't considered on hiatus. So what, what really is the definition? You know, do I, we have to hit a certain number, a quota of shows in a year to not be on hiatus, you know? Uh <laughs> I don't think it really matters as long as you're you're a band and you decided you're not done then you're then you're not done you know like um we def- we never said that we were done or or that we were on hiatus or that we were anything we never made any kind of statement about anything so you know I don't like to close the door on things because what if later on I want to do it and I and I also don't want to be one of those bands that's like we're doing a reunion nothing against bands doing reunions but I just we did decide that when we just when this is done it's done if we ever say this is done then it's done and and we're moving on to other stuff but that's another reason why we haven't said it's done yet because you know this stuff still probably exists in me a little bit I just kind of want to write different stuff for a while well, I mean, you obviously you don't want to do like Kiss, and you don't want to do your seventy eighth final tour, um, mm-hmm. you know, something yeah. stupid like that. Or Motley Crue. Yeah, Motley Crue have done it. It seems to be the thing. Which, um, yeah, an interesting thing though. You know, we start getting into some of the other stuff you've done. Do you find that every time you release something else um, that you're a part of, that everyone's saying, "Does this mean more red cord will be on the way?" Is that something you always hear? You know. <laughs> Often, yeah, that often happens. Um, <clears throat> usually, uh, yeah, usually if if I post something, there's at least one person that says more red cord or new red cord record or or something like that. And um, and you know, I used to get a little annoyed by it. Like when I first started putting out stuff after the red cord, I would get a little annoyed. I'd be like, "Why well, don't? Oh, I'm not doing that right now. I'm doing this." <laughs> but now I'm like, "Well, that's just they're just excited about a thing that I did," and and I should take that as a compliment rather than rather than getting like all whiny about it. Oh, I'm, you know, like it's totally cool. I'm doing a lot of stuff that's not like the red cord. So I don't expect people to, you know, everyone who likes the red cord to care about, you know, like some ambient thing I do that is like a completely different thing. You know, it's asking a lot really to be like, Hey, listen to this other completely different project. That's nothing like that. 
and some people are along for the ride, and that's cool. I definitely, there are definitely musicians that I that I listen to who I will check out anything they do, even if I don't like everything they do. Hmm. Um, you know, like Devin Townsend, he's does all kinds of different stuff. I love like ninety percent of his music is like un- unbelievable. Other stuff, I'm just like, oh, that's cool. It's not my thing, but I'm glad that he does it. I'm glad that he does what he wants to do. There's a guy that's like really true to his art, you know? Um, so yeah. And I put out a lot of stuff since teeth machine that doesn't sound like teeth machine. So, well, I mean, um, one of, one of those things that you did, which was kind of going when red cord was going was you got into, or you became part of beyond the sixth seal. Um, right. Which, uh, was kind of, it was heavy as shit, but it was more on the thrash side of things in moments. There was still some melodic death metal as well. Um, mm-hmm. Was that when you started to, because that was you got into doing some of that with the red chord, was that the start of you kind of branching out with your musical skills a bit more? Well, the funny thing is I actually did the Six Seal record the same year that we did Fuse Together. Yeah, Earth so- and Sphere, wasn't it? Yeah, and I wasn't supposed to be a member of the band. I was just their singer had left, and they asked me if I would just. Adam was in the Red Chord at the time, and he asked me if I would sing on the record since they didn't have a singer. Um, and we recorded it with Kurt Ballou at his old studio in uh, Norwood. And I definitely was like, I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do it. That'll be fun. And then. Then there was a conversation like, well, do you want to play some shows? So then we did. Then we went to Europe with the Red Chord and the two bands played together. And I did double sets. Me and Adam both did back-to-back um, sets, which was very tiring, especially because since I was totally out of shape. Um, and we came home from tour and it was a con- like Adam quit the Red Chord and Mike quit the Red Chord. And the conversation was do you want to make Beyond Six Seal a, a thing that we focus on? Adam quit Red Court to focus on Six Seal. And I said, well, I can't really make a decision just yet because I don't want to, I want to, I want, even though we don't have a drummer or a bass player, I want, I want to write, I want to like make Red Court a focus. Um, and then we broke up. I think Brendan, our drummer was just like, well, I can't, I gotta, you know, like I gotta make a, like other commitments. So we stopped. And that band got revived as a, as a studio project um, later on because we had written a bunch of songs. So, like, I was kind of always trying to do other things. I've always just had such, you know, it's, I've always just had, I've wanted to write a lot of different types of music. And I don't want to dump it all into one project. Um, so there are a lot of different focuses. There always have been. It's only in the last 10 years since Red Chord stopped doing stuff that I've really been, like, um, or nine years, I guess, that I've really been starting to focus on all these other things. Yeah, and it's, I think, you know, like you said earlier with Devin Townsend, I think it's really exciting because it shows that um, with your abilities and your writing style that it's not limited to one genre or one style because, you know, you've got the red chord with its thing, beyond the sixth deal, and then, you know, there's a couple of others and one which was... When I first heard it, you know, threw me for a spin was Stomach Earth, which has got that mm-hmm. real, it's dense, 
uh, doomy, kind of sludge, um, real slower tempo in comparison to yeah. everything else. Um, was that a passion project? Because is am I right in saying that's basically just a solo project? Yeah, yeah, I did everything on that recording. Um, it, it was a passion project that for, existed alongside the Red Chord for a long time, actually. Um, I think I started. I think I started in like 2001, um, like right around the time I was busy with Red Chord. I had these a bunch of projects. There was a project called Never Again that was like weird eclectic thing. I gave CDRs to the dudes in the band, like right as I joined the band. Now, I wish I had never given it to anyone because it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but the, the original members of Red Chord got copies of that. I don't know who still would have it, but I hope that they keep it locked in a safe because it's really embarrassing. But um, yeah, the project was called Neurothotep at the time. And it was like funeral doom mixed with like Panthimonium, like I was really, I've always been really into Panthimonium, and so there's like weird John Zorn sounding noisy parts, and I was just doing stuff that I wanted to do, and I had the project for years, I just sort of posted MP3s online, and then Guy had um, started Black Market Activities, his label, and he was like, I'll put that out. He was always trying to get me, he was always trying to like nudge me a little to do something with it, and I was a little bit, um, I was just kind of procrastinating, sort of sitting on it, sort of like keeping it too close and keeping it so like, you know, I wanted, I had this idea of how it was supposed to sound and I got, and I used to overthink it a lot. And I, I was like, you can never, it'll never be perfect. So I have to just keep making it. And one day he was like, I'll put it out. If you, if you finish the record, if you make the record. So I started to work on it. It took a, like a year to really get my brain in a place where I said, on this date, it will be done. No matter where it is, it has to be done by this date because otherwise, you know, you just change something and you just work on it, work it to death. And at some point you need to let it go. So it was actually Guy's um, encouragement that got me to finish it. Um, and then it really became the thing. It ended up being becoming a thing I was really proud of. Um, and I'm definitely going to do more with it now. A few years later, we played a show with it in New York, um, as a full band. Um, maybe it was a year later, a year or two. I forget. I think that was 2014. <clears throat> and then we got invited, uh, by Jake to play Roadburn in 2018. And, uh, and that's when I really just, I really realized that I, that I need to work more on that and make that a focus in my life because, it was the greatest show I've ever played in my life. It was like the most, I I've never say this. It was the best. I've never said it before that day, but it was the best day of my life. Um, it was incredible. It was like, you know, the, this room full of people that cared about this weird thing that I thought only I cared about and a couple friends. And, uh, and we played the record start to finish and we had a, we had a video backdrop that I made. Um, and it was just like a really, you know, really amazing moment for me. I couldn't believe it, uh, that I couldn't believe that people cared. I couldn't believe that we got to do it. I'd always wanted to play Roadburn and especially with Summit Earth. Um, and Greg, you know, my, my best friend playing bass, you know, and, uh, we're playing, uh, we played to drum tracks and like some other noise tracks that are on the record. Um, 
and uh, it was just it was just amazing. I, so I, after that, I was like, wow, I have to recreate. I have to get as close to that experience as I can. As you know, I got to make more Stomach Earth and play more shows. Well, it's good to hear that there's more of that because yeah, it took me by surprise because it wasn't what I was expecting. But you know, it's something mm-hmm. that over time I've learned. You know, I find moments, it's a slow burn for me. I find moments in a song and then I'm like, I want to hear that moment again. And when I listen to that moment, I find a new moment before or afterwards. And then mm. it just builds and builds and builds. Um, couple well, other, thank you. Oh, it's amazing, man. I, I mean, I was really shocked by it. Um, love it. A um, couple other things because, you know, we're running. I've held you for fucking long because you're amazing. <laughs> um but not quite finished yet because there's some other things you've done I'd love to touch on. And one is that took me by surprise that this week <clears throat> I spent some time listening into it, um, which was Nightkin, um, which I don't know if it's still going, but um, that blackened death band that you've been a part of um, or are mm-hmm. a part of. And what's the go with that? Is that just another thing where you wanted to get that style out and you wanted to be a part of it. Um, and what is actually going on with Nightkin? Um, so Nightkin actually is Dave Locks. Uh, that's his, his brainchild. He, um, the guitar player writes all the stuff. Um, I know Matt, the other guitar player has written some stuff for it too. Uh, but it's mostly Dave's, um, it's mostly Dave's baby. Uh, Matt plays a lot of the ripping leads on it. Both guys, ridiculous guitar players. And, um, Dave had reached out to me like, I think 2008 or something a long time ago. Uh, Dave used to play in black Dolly murder and that's how we knew each other. And at one point he was like, Hey, I got this project. I don't, don't think he had a name for it at the time. He was like, I'd love for you to sing on it. I don't know who's going to be in it or whatever, but it's just a fun thing he wanted to do. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Uh, and then it was, then a few years passed. I totally like took forever to get back to him. And the band sort of came together, I guess it was 2013 by the 2012. They, he had like a band, um, and all dudes that are shredders and, uh, a bunch of people were like, I think at one point they were trying out a singer and I couldn't do shows. And then we just kind of worked out a way that we could play shows together and make, you know, make the record. They, um, I record my vocals here. They record the rest of the band in Detroit where they live, which is, um, you know, like a couple hours on a plane to get to, but luckily it's a cheap flight. So, you know, we played some weekend shows. We'll do like three, you know, two or three shows at a time. Um, but yeah, it's been dormant for a little while, um, because of everybody's lives and stuff. Bass player had a baby and, and Dave's got other stuff going on. Um, but we have talked a little bit more recently about doing more with it. Um, and there are songs, uh, demo songs that Dave's written that are awesome. I wrote some lyrics to some of them. Um, and, uh oh yeah we're gonna i think we're gonna re-release our first uh recording um matt our guitar player remixed it and it sounds awesome it sounds like real real full so yeah there's more to come with that band for sure um it's super fun playing in that band because they're uh you know 
Dave writes some crazy riffs and the songs are awesome and all, and I get to just growl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about if you've hit the right note or you know what's coming up next. You just got to focus on the yeah. uh, on the heavies. Um, some of the some of the riffs are hard, and I don't even have to learn them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, an interesting one um, is Unraveler. Um, it kind of feels like that's your video game passion, kind of. Yeah, um, I've. You know, I've followed your website for a couple of years now, and I noticed in there that I can't remember when you put it up, but it was a couple of years ago. You said that you were telling everyone there was going to be new music on the way, um, because yeah, we've had Kinship Synthesis um, in mm-hmm. 2012. Uh, what's going on with Unraveler? Um, so that's been on hold for a little while, um, just mainly because of other things. But uh, there is a lot of music floating around. It'll definitely, I'll definitely have more come out with that i just don't have any definitive plans right now because uh of all the other stuff that's been happening um there's another beyond the six seal record that's almost done and a bit of a uh where your wounds kind of took a lot of my attention when we were making that last record so a lot of stuff got put on hold there and now we have a new band actually um with some of those guys which I can say now we haven't announced it yet, but um, I did do an interview last week where I I don't know when it's gonna I guess it depends on when you when you put this up, um, but we have a new band um, called Umbravite that is a death metal project with me Greg and um, John Rice who plays with Red Chord sometimes, and also Jake Bannon and Sean Martin from. Where your wounds and converge and hate breed and um and it's like a fast aggressive death metal record. Mm. Um, yeah, that's so that's like the last thing that we did. I'm pretty excited about that. We we there hasn't been an official announcement yet, but it's gonna be in the next next week, I think. So and are you what are you guys doing? Are you are you playing shows? Or are you just releasing an album? We plan on playing shows. Um, we don't have anything lined up at the moment. Right now, we're just gonna posts up that we have this project and um we finished the record last month so yeah it's um it's pretty fun uh plus i get to play death metal in a band on guitar again and what was it called again for everyone listening it's called uh umbra vitae or umbra vitae i think it's actually pronounced it's a latin for shadow of life which is also the name of the record Ooh, yeah love it that sounds sick um thanks uh so the only other thing to talk about is of course one that you mentioned in there and it is what some people maybe nowadays think is your main focus uh because it is what you've been doing a lot of which is wear your wounds and um how did you kind of get into the project because i remember when uh it was first announced wear your wounds that it said you were just a guest and then i kind of as i've been watching the band and paying attention to the band since you know around 216 217 seems like you're just there all the time you know you just you're there so it doesn't seem like you're a guest it kind of feels like you're part of the outfit if that makes sense yeah so in the beginning it started as like guest appearances kind of thing um and then the last record we made as a full we we made it as a band um you know the first record was jake's solo thing it was like his 
baby that he was he was kind of doing a similar thing with it that I had done with Summer Earth where he was like I've been working on this for a long time and I got to just do it you know and um and uh he had so much material for that first record um and he was I think it was all the way back in 2014 that he was like hey do you want to play on this this thing I'm working on this record and he had the he had like a uh, the one song split with um uh, ben Chisholm's project uh, Revelator, and then he was like, "You want to play some solos on this?" So I started doing that, and we started talking about playing and what you know, and making the record. And then, and then we started. We played a couple shows, and he got a band together, and that band continued to perform together to the point where we started to gel in a band type way, rather than like hired guns, which we started off as. So then he was like, "Well, let's make this. You know, I want to make this next record." as if we're a band now we're a band We're you know it's the guys who play on live are no longer live musicians they're now a member of warrior wounds so that record came together in like jamming band type way um still kind of a remote way too because our drummer chris maggio lives in uh louisville kentucky um but yeah, it's sort of formed as like uh, now that now you know it's a five piece band now as a, as opposed to a solo project with guests, mm-hmm. um, and it's been a really amazing experience and completely different than anything I've done before. Definitely learning. I've been learning a lot about playing slower. You know, like not. It's like it's like the opposite of red chord. It's like, you know, instead of saying, "Oh, we played that riff twice. That's too many times." You know, like. <laughs> let's play that riff. Let's let that riff breathe and and let it like grow and change into something. You know, Red Chord was literally like on to the next thing, and Weary Wounds is like, you know, let's let this happen organically. And it's really it's been a great learning experience for me as a musician. Um, something I have to ask because I'll be feel reminisced if I don't is, which is my last question before we wrap up, and that is that you. Uh, at a stage now where you've got your finger in the pies in a lot of different ways and you've seen the industry in a lot of different ways. You've seen it from growing up as a kid, um, same age as me, and you remember, you know, cassettes and then you remember when CDs came in and all of this stuff. With the Mm -hmm. way the music industry has evolved and changed gradually over time, as an artist and a musician, is the industry at a point where you're you think it's happy and healthy, or do you think the industry is struggling, or do you think we're still trying to learn all the kinks? Because things are very different in 2020 than they were in mm-hmm. 1992. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a combination of those three things. Um, if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago, or like five years ago, I would say the I feel like the industry is struggling because there were a lot of there were a lot of people who were like having real growing pains with some of the changes that were happening. I feel like there's a lot more younger musicians and younger labels now who are adapting really well or growing into this the industry as, as it is now. I think that anyone trying to hang on to the old ways, you know, the way that bands used to, like once in a while, I, I, I feel like you hear this less now, but once in a while you hear like some musician who's been around for 30 years or something saying, Oh, you know, I used to get paid this way. It's not fair to musicians anymore. And and those guys just sound like dinosaurs now because it's just a different 
you just have to um you have to adapt with it you know uh i think i think trent reznor does it really well mm. uh a, a guy who came from a very different era who's adapted alongside the industry over the years and he's had a few moments where he said something where you're like oh it sounds like a, something a guy from the past would say but he's he's been really smart about you know growing and adapting and changing with uh with these changes i mean you can't make you don't make money off record sales anymore that's that's not even news anymore that used to be the thing that people would complain about now it's like well how do we make it work playing music you know promoting music selling music booking shows it's just it's it's different now and uh i mean it's 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 still just as hard as ever you could argue that it's harder or less hard but i feel like it's just a different type of hard it's always been it's always been hard to make a living in music whether no matter what part of it you're in um you know because it's it's the most subjective you know art is the most subjective thing and mm. um i don't know i think the industry is doing a, i think there's a lot of cool stuff happening now i think it's awesome that i know that i was reading you know people getting mad i guess about the billy eilish record winning a production award and and then uh you know like people are making records on their laptops and that's this is you know that's been happening for years now and it's awesome that everybody has access everybody gets a chance to make something you know and i think that rules another not to bring up trent Reznor again but he said something in that um I don't know if you've seen that Sound City documentary. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, he says a really poignant thing when he's talking about digital instruments and recording, and he says, "Well, there's a lot more. There's a lot more, uh, you know, tools now, and a lot more ability, or like it's a lot more possible to make things now. But are we seeing a lot more uh, that much more great music? Not really. Like it's like you still have to be able to use those tools. You know, some people might complain." Oh, I, I remember when I put out the Unraveler uh, release, which, by the way, I released as a free record because I was I made it for fun, and I was like, I don't care. I was making this while I was making Summit Earth. I just want to share this thing. It was a little release for me. And someone wrote, "Oh, I, yeah, all you need is to have a drum machine, and you can or superior drummer, and you can make a record." And I was like, "Well, you still have to you still have to make the record. Just because you have the drum machine doesn't mean you you don't have to do the work." But uh, I don't know. Now I'm definitely rambling, but I do feel like the industry is in a very strange and interesting place. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm still hearing so much new music that rules made by all these, you know, young musicians who are coming out of nowhere and putting out awesome stuff. It's like, it's just as exciting as ever as far as I'm, and maybe more so, you know, cause now there's that kid who maybe didn't have access anymore or before maybe he couldn't make a record cause he didn't know anybody. Now he's got like a band camp with his awesome, weird concept record. And now we all get to listen to it. You know, it is, it's a whole different ball game. And like you said, you, and anyone can make music now, but you can still notice the difference between talent and non-talent. That's the only difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Mike, we're going to wrap things up with, you know, everyone that's listening has maybe enjoyed, maybe thinks this chat was shit. If you think it's shit, you're <laughs> shit. Anyone thinks it's shit, you're shit. Um, everyone loves this part of the, the chat, and this is how we wrap things up. And um, basically, we're going to find out what makes you tick. 
Um, it's just a couple of quick fire questions. You pick your favorite of the two. Um, okay. And some are food, some are music, some are movies. But we're just going to find out if we spent the day with Mike, uh, what would mm-hmm. he what would he like to do? Okay. Okay. Now, yeah. would you rather a pizza or a burger? Ooh, that's tough. I, I they're both great. I'm going to go with pizza though. Okay. Uh, ribs or brisket? Brisket. Okay. Risotto or pasta? Pasta. Okay. Soft taco, hard taco? Ooh, these are tough questions. Mm-hmm. Hard taco. Uh, I found that this can actually break some people, so hopefully we don't break uh. it. <laughs> um, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Crunchy. Coffee. Even or though t- I don't even buy it. <laughs> really? I don't buy crunchy peanut butter, but I, if I had to pick, for some reason, I'm going to say crunchy. Okay. Are you a coffee or a tea man? Coffee. Okay. Would you rather cook at home or dine out? Dine out, definitely. Uh, new movie. Do you want to watch it at the cinema or on the couch? Couch. Now, next one, considering the weather that you're used to, would you rather spend the day at the beach or at the snow? Snow. Okay. So you, you seem to smash through them. There doesn't seem to be that much of a challenge. Um, <laughs> Mario or Zelda? Oh, Zelda. Easy. Okay. Mega Man or Double Dragon? Uh, I'm going to say Mega Man, but it's tough. Okay. Uh, are you a cat or a dog person? Dog. Okay. Terminator or Predator? Oh, that's also really hard, but I'm definitely going to say Predator. Okay. Rambo or Rocky? Uh, Rambo. Okay. Uh, South Park or Simpsons? Simpsons. Okay. Wait. No, no South. No, that's tough. That's a tough Ooh. one. Uh, no, I'm going to say Simpsons. Okay. Um, some music ones here. Uh, Cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia Murder? Oh, I love the Black Dahlia Murder, but Cannibal Corpse, I got to, I got to pick the classics. Uh, Slayer or Pantera? Oh, Slayer. Easy. Metallica or... Dave Mustaine. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say Metallica. Okay. Um, anthrax or, or Testament? Testament. Okay. Uh, Converge or Dillager Escape Plan? I got to pick Converge. Uh, Meshuga or Opeth? Um, that's a good one too. Uh, I'm going to say Opeth. Okay. Now the last few. If you're playing a show... Um, do you want to see stage dives going on or would you prefer to have mic grabs going on? Mic grabs, um, or stage dives? I would say stage dives are more fun. Okay. You go to a show to watch one of your favorite bands. Are you going to watch from the mosh pit or are you going to watch up the back by the sound desk? Right by the soundboard. That's, that's where you get it. That's where you get the best sound. Well, it's also the safest place to be. I'm too old to be in a pit. I'm too old. Yeah, me too. (laughs) If I get anywhere near a mosh pit, my knees start to just naturally hurt the closer I get. Like, I don't know why. Oh, yeah. My lower back gives up. Um, Okay, we've got two left. Now, this one, one goes in hand with the other, but if you had to just pick one, would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? Record for the rest of my life. Easy. And the last one, I'm going to give you your all-time favorite album, do you want it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Vinyl. If it's my favorite album, yeah. I want to see that big art. It's glorious sound as well. Like the sound yeah. out of it. Oof. 
Um, I, I really only buy vinyl uh, when it's a record I really love. I try to keep my collection small. Yeah, I'm trying to grow mine. Mine's mm, probably, I'm only probably at about 100, um, so I'm trying to grow, mm. grow it. Um, yeah. Mike, we exceeded all expectations. Absolute sexy conversation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you for putting time aside for me. Um means a lot and really excited for all this new stuff that's on the way and possibly in the pipeline dude thank you yeah it was a pleasure to talk about all this stuff and and uh thanks for asking interesting questions
So that was my chat with Mike of the Red Cord and Wear Your Wounds. And at the end there, you heard the Red Cord's track Fixation on Plastics, which is from their album Clients. You also heard the Red Cord's track Send the Death Storm, which is from their album Pray for Eyes. And the last track you heard there was Wear Your Wounds song Best Cry of Your Life, which is from the band's self-titled album. Now's that part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So, as you heard, Mike has been in a lot of projects. So, if you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoyed the music at the end there, get online, buy a copy, stream a copy, whatever you got to do, support Mike and the amazing music he has contributed to. If you're into physicals, get onto eBay, buy something there. If you're into merch, get online and find something as well. Everything you can do to support Mike and the projects he's been in is vital and essential, and especially in our current climate. I've also got to take this moment to thank Mike again. Thank you so very, very much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 110 done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that We need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.